Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about some of the funniest art heists from throughout history. Uh, because some of the stories attached to the theft of famous paintings, well, not just paintings, actually, famous artworks more broadly, uh, these stories, some of them, just ridiculous. Um, I've picked some of the most interesting or funny art thefts in history. I mean, look, there are a lot to choose from. Um, and initially, when I started this episode, I when I started drafting it, uh, I, I started with the greatest art thefts. Um, but that proved to be a little difficult to determine because what makes an art heist great? Is it how much the paintings were worth? Is it how elaborate or exciting the heist was? Was it how much attention it gained at the time? Look, I don't know. And honestly, I don't care. It doesn't really matter all that much because instead of going for greatest, we've gone for funniest, uh, something which is subjective and should result in fewer, well, actually, emails hitting the old inbox. Look, I, I guess... I guess people could still email me saying that these heists aren't funny, but in that case, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Sorry, I guess. Anyway, got a bit of everything today. We've got stolen paintings hidden in toilets. We've got art thieves falling off ladders and dropping the paintings that they're stealing. Uh, we've got the same artwork being a victim of, uh, of seven different thefts, all sorts of stuff today. Um, but before we begin all the silly nonsense, before we get into the, the truly ridiculous stuff, um, I do want to very quickly talk about something else. Um, not going to spend the whole episode on this, but I do feel I do feel a level of obligation to mention it, given that we are getting underway with an episode of a history podcast, an episode that is devo- devoted to stolen art. Um, and it is worth noting that the greatest art thieves in history are, of course, the owners, operators, and the people associated with many of the largest and most successful museums around the world. Again, we're not going to spend too long on this. This is supposed to be a light and frothy entertainment podcast. So I'm not going to harp on about it. But if we're talking about art thieves, we we need to give credit to the greatest art thieves that history has ever known. Places like the British Museum and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, the Field Museum in Chicago, the Neues Museum in Berlin, the Pushkin Museum in Moscow, the Louvre in Paris, and of course, so, so many more. They are full of art and artefacts that have been stolen over the centuries in the name of colonialism and imperialism, weak excuses fabricated out of thin air as to why they're not just being given back. Just give the damn things back and be done with it. It is time to move past European imperialism. The West has done enough. Anyway, with that out of the way, we return now to your regularly scheduled nonsense here. Let's get into our our art heists. Off we go. The first one here, the first one we're actually going to do... We're kind of going to do two, um, not roll them into one because, well, f- firstly, they're not that long, right? And um, secondly, there is there is a thematic link between the two of them. So it's kind of, it's two smaller art heists that I want to mention because of their common theme, um, a theme that is both very interesting and very funny. You won't be surprised to learn that both of our fir- first art heists here are... Toilet related, which is always going to pique my interest. Episode 139, The History of the Toilet, one of my proudest efforts. Uh, Anyway, let's begin. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 2003, breaking the kind of vague rule that I have about recent history. But then again, it was, I will remind you, 20 years ago, 2003, wasn't it? Yes. That's the year that the first Pirates of the Caribbean film came out, of course. Yeah, two decades ago. How about that one? Anyway, we're going back to Manchester. We're going to Manchester in the UK. 
where there is a reasonably famous art, art gallery known as the Whitworth, and it's home to, home to some very famous paintings, uh, Picasso, Van Gogh, uh, artists that you've almost certainly heard of. You know, two decades ago, 2003, uh, some of these famous works went missing, namely Van Gogh's uh, The Fortification of Paris, uh, Picasso's Poverty, and a work called Tahitian Landscape by Paul Gauguin, uh, who I had never heard of either, and then I looked him up and realised that he he painted the fourth most expensive painting ever sold. So maybe I should have heard of him. Anyway, <clears throat> in April 2003, some thieves forced their way into the gallery. Uh, they broke through steel-covered rear doors. They were that determined. They ran into one of the rooms and they started unscrewing frames from the walls. Now, they took three frames, these three, three frames containing the Van Gogh, the uh, the Picasso and the, and, and the Gauguin, um, and then they scarpered. They ran away. They weren't even caught on the CCTV that monitored the gallery. Very, very neat professional job done, except it seems like they didn't actually want the paintings all that much because after an anonymous tip-off some days later, I mean, the, the cops obviously were called in to investigate, but until this anonymous tip-off, they didn't have much to go on until they were directed to go and investigate a local public toilet. And inside this toilet, they found the three stolen paintings taken out of their frames and rolled up into a cardboard tube like they were going to be sent via the post. And also inside this toilet, they... I mean, look, I'm sorry, I should mention as well before we get to that, the media had a field day with this. I mean, not only did this crime immediately solve itself with the, you know, paintings being found in the toilet, but the media coverage, they instantly labelled this public toilet block the... Louvre, like the like the British slang for toilet, which is very very clever indeed. Um, but ultimately, paintings recovered safely, more or less, from the uh, uh, from the toilet. But also with the paintings was a note. Right, this note very humiliating for the gallery indeed, because this note read, <clears throat> "We didn't intend to steal these paintings." Just to highlight the woeful security. I do like the fact they didn't intend to. What did you do? You broke in. You, you, you wanted to prove to the gallery they had bad security. So you broke in and then what? Fell over and the paintings came off the wall and landed in your back pocket. Very strange way to put it. Anyway, the paintings were mostly fine. The Van Gogh had suffered a bit of moisture damage. There was a, there was a lot of tut-tutting about here. How irresponsible and childish the whole thing was. But, I mean, talk about the rubbins. Nicking these paintings worth so much money. Not even doing anything, not, not taking them off, trying to fence them or anything, just leaving them in a toilet with a note for the rub-ins. Absolutely brilliant. The thieves are never caught. They were, ne- they, they were never caught. And uh, and I'll tell you this as well. They didn't end up empty-handed. Even though they left the paintings behind, the frames never recovered. So, I mean, if that was their idea all along, maybe they had, you know, they wanted to frame some nice paintings they had at home or some prints they'd bought online or something. Well, it's 2003, so some... Some prints that they had faxed themselves. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and they just they're looking at IKEA. Was IKEA even around in two thousand and three? Oh my goodness! It is. It is a very strange time to be alive, where we're looking up whether IKEA is old enough to have been around. Oh, it, okay. It was. It was established in nineteen forty three. Never mind. Anyway. Maybe they bought, maybe they, they just, the, the prices for the IKEA frames, like, no, that's ridiculous. It'll be simple. It'll be easier to just steal them from a, from a gallery. We'll go ahead and do that. But they got away with it. Frames have never been recovered, even if the paintings have been. The second toilet-related art heist that we're talking about here, which is not a sentence I ever anticipated to actually say, but there is a second toilet-related art, art theft. 
And I want to talk about this one because, oh boy, it involves a toilet made of solid gold. And not just a model of a toilet. No, no, no. An actual, factual, working, functioning, flushing toilet made of gold. You might have heard of this artwork. It was made in 2016 by Italian artist Maurizio Catalan. Uh, This bloke is known to be a bit of a piss taker. He is the one that sticky taped a banana to a wall and sold it for six figures. Not a joke. That actually happened. Ridiculous. I am in the wrong line of work. I should get into modern art. Maybe I should I should print off the script to one of these stupid podcasts and sticky tape it to a to an art gallery wall and see how that goes. Anyway, when he wasn't busy sticking bananas to walls, Catalan made a fully functional toilet and he made it out of entirely out of solid 18 karat gold. Absolutely incredible. I mean, look, if this podcast ever blows up to the point that I have more money than I know what to do with, a solid gold toilet will be extremely high on my list of things that I need to acquire. Let me tell you, I'll be on the phone to Catalan straight away being like, mate, make me another. Anyway, this artwork was entitled America. So some very, this, I don't know if you're picking up on it, there's some very subtle political, political commentary going on with this one. Anyway, this artwork called America, it was installed in the Guggenheim Museum in New York, very famous museum. But the best part about this art installation, and, you know, modern art doesn't do a lot for me at the best of times, but I tell you what, I can get behind this one because this artwork, right, installed in the Guggenheim, was, as I say, a functioning toilet. And it was plumbed in to the museum's sewage system. You could go and use this toilet while it was installed. You could go and pinch off a turd while seated on a solid gold dunny worth literal millions of dollars. Can you imagine? Oh my goodness. I, like, I, I'm not the sort of person who would go to an art gallery by choice, but if the Guggenheim, I would have been first in line to get in on that, to get into this, this exhibition, to get into this gallery, to get into this incredible piece of, <laughs> piece of artwork. Anyway, um, before, I mean, we'll get to the heist. There's one more story I want to tell you about this piece of work. Um, when former US President Donald Trump asked to borrow a Van Gogh painting from the Guggenheim uh, for the White House during his tenure as, as president. Um, so he calls up the Guggenheim. He's like, I'd like to borrow a Van Gogh. And they're like, um, well, we don't have a Van Gogh to offer you, but we can offer you America by Catalan. I mean, what a repost, right? A studied insult. They instead of giving him, giving him a you know a Van Gogh worth millions, they instead offered him a solid gold toilet. I absolutely love this. What a what a power move, right? Doesn't seem like Trump took the Guggenheim up on the offer. The White House was not available for comment when uh, when pursued about what had happened to the, uh, when it came to this request they made. Anyway, as you might have guessed, toilet was stolen. It was stolen, not from the Guggenheim. It was actually lent uh, years later to Blenheim Palace, which is the ancestral home of the Churchill family. Uh, And again, it was installed. It was installed, plumbed in, in a bathroom, a bathroom where Winston Churchill himself used to to create his his very own and very personal brand of cigars. Uh, Blenheim Palace... Open to the public. Uh, you can you can go and visit it today. There's an entry fee. You go in, you can walk around and and, and see this uh, this old stately home. And for a while there, while the the this piece of work, artwork, America was uh, was plumbed in, you could go and Buster Grumpy in the same room as Churchill did, seated in rather more style on a six million dollar hunk of of gold. Again, incredible. But then it was stolen. 
In 2019, on the morning of the 14th of September, police were called to Blenheim Palace when staff discovered that the toilet had been nicked overnight. It would it had, it had just been ripped right out of the wall, which, I mean, not only ruined the fun for everyone, but also did considerable damage to Blenheim Palace as well. It did significant damage to the building. I mean, it looks like the thieves did a bit of a crap job in getting it out of the wall neatly. Oh, thank you. Um, there have been there have been a bunch of arrests uh, in connection with the theft since then, but nothing has really come of any of them, uh, and the toilet has never resurfaced. Uh, it's likely that it was probably melted down for its uh, its value in gold. Millions, as I say, millions of dollars worth of gold. Such a shame. I mean, look, again, I'm not one for modern art. I think most of it's rubbish, but this is a work that I could get behind. Well, actually, no. I wouldn't get behind it. I'd get right on top of it. Let me tell you, that would have been the dream. But a real loss to the world of art and, of course, to the world of those with more discerning taste for the finer things when it comes to, you know, punching out a turd. You're almost certainly familiar with Edvard Munch's The Scream. It is a truly iconic work. Uh, you, know, you know the one I'm talking about. It's the one of the bald bloke on the pier or the bridge or whatever it is. Uh, hands clutched to the side of his head like a, like a clickbait YouTube video thumbnail about someone caught cheating in Minecraft. I mean, truly a reflection of the horror of the human condition. What's more horrific than cheating in Minecraft, I ask you. Anyway, the Scream... It has been analysed and poured over and all sorts of interpretations have been made about this painting. Uh, it, you know, it's said to reflect Munch's experience with trauma and, and mental illness. He wasn't a very happy bloke himself. Poor old Munch, his sister, ended up as a patient at an asylum. Very unhappy childhood and family life. And in fact, the, the asylum that his sister ended up in uh, was actually near where this painting is is, is said to represent, Ekeberg in, in Norway. And look, you know, I'm not going to make light of the painting, even if you don't think much of it. It is still a deeply expressive piece, might have helped poor Munch deal with his demons, and you cannot deny, you can't argue that it is an extremely iconic and very, very famous piece of art. So famous, in fact, that one copy of it was sold for almost 120 million US dollars back in 2012. That is a lot of clams. Uh, one copy, you may ask. Yes, well, let me tell you this. There are multiple. There are actually multiple copies of The Scream. It's not just a single painting. Munch made four copies of it, two in pastel, two painted, uh, and he also made a lithograph print of it as well. And uh, and the painted versions, both of them, one painted in 1893 that's said to be the original, uh, and another he painted in 1910, both of these versions have been stolen on different occasions, the first in 1994 and then the other in 2004. How about that? And both of them have pretty good stories attached to them as well. It's a pretty good story both times. So um, we're going to do we're going to talk about both of them. Let's start with the first one, the original 1893 painting. It was stolen in 1994, as I say. Edvard Munch, he was Norwegian, and so the scream it hung in the Norwegian National Gallery in Oslo, as you might expect. Uh, in 1994, however, something else was going on in Norway. Uh, it was the home of the Winter Olympic Games that year, held in Lillehammer, which is about two hours north of, uh, of Oslo. And as you might expect, the country and its capital swept up in Olympic fever. Norway is uh, historically one of, if not the most successful nation in the uh, in the Winter Olympic Games. So I'm sure they were all very, very excited. Um, and in the lead up uh, to the to the games beginning, there were of course all sorts of events and you know celebrations, whatever else, to get people excited, get people hyped up, and uh, and get people ready for the games. And, and one such event were, was a special exhibition held at the at the National Gallery in Oslo. 
And in order to make room for this Olympic exhibition, many famous works of art had been displaced from their regular positions in, in the gallery and moved to different sections. And one such famous work of art, as you probably already guessed, was indeed the Scream. It was moved from its regular gallery, it was moved down a floor, and this gave uh, a pair of thieves a unique opportunity to nick it. And the thieves chose a, uh, a very good moment to make their move against this painting. They chose the night of the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympic Games in Lillehammer. Uh, of course, people not just around Oslo, but around the world, distracted by the spectacle of the uh, of the opening ceremony of the, of the Winter Olympic Games there. So many people would have driven up from Oslo to be there or they're at home watching it on the telly, whatever else. And so these two blokes, they got a clear run at the screen. And so that night they approached the National Gallery with a ladder. And yeah, I mean, that that <laughs> that was the equipment they brought. You're sort of thinking art heist, right? We're going to have like diamond edged saws to cut through glass and like a special kind of smoke powder or something that illuminates laser beams that they have to dodge. No, just two blokes what had a ladder uh, went up to the National Gallery. They leaned the they leaned the ladder up against the side of it and of course there were, there were windows it's not as if they left the windows open they could just climb through an open window to get through of course not and the thieves had a very advanced way of getting through these windows they smashed them <laughs> they just got a ladder put it up against the side of the building and smashed a window before they did that i should mention one of them fell off the ladder um, if you go online, you can find some of the CCTV images of the blokes during this daring heist. One of the blokes fell off the ladder while climbing up. But clumsiness aside, they smashed the window. They went through and uh, they snuck in. They snuck into the museum. They went to the, the, the gallery where the scream was temporarily being held. And uh, they grabbed it off the wall and headed back to the window, climbed back through down with, they climbed back through with the painting, didn't fall off the ladder this time, and they got away. But, of course, I mean, what kind of art thieves were they if they didn't leave a note behind? These two also left a, uh, a little rub-in note for the, uh, for the owners of the, of the National Gallery as well. They left a note saying, thanks for the poor security. So, I mean, that if I owned an art gallery, I would be, just, just to avoid the humiliation of art thieves leaving a note behind, I would be spending so much money on, I mean, if we're in this, living in this fantasy land where I'm worth millions and billions, first of all, solid gold toilet, and it's open, everyone can come and have a sit on this particular throne, but second only to the cost of buying a solid gold toilet will be the cost of the wages I pay to the many security guards that'll be there guarding it night and day, don't you worry about that. Anyway. These two blokes, they uh, they nicked the the painting, they nicked the screen, got away, clean getaway, at least for now, and um, the cops are baffled. They don't know what to do. They swing into action. They're trying to find clues. They're trying to figure out what the what the next step is, and they enlisted the help of the British police. And you might be thinking, well, what's going on there? Why are they bringing in external? an external police force, like consultants from Britain. And then, I will remind you, of course, I mean, who else would they go to? Which nation on this green earth has more experience with stolen art than the British? So I don't think that's actually why the Norwegians brought them in. But the British were brought in all the same. The British sent over some detectives to set up a sting operation and see if they could find this famous work of art as it was you know, very, very likely to be sold on the black market, they were going to see if they could sniff it out before it disappeared forever. So 
These detectives, they posed as rich art dealers uh, who were willing to buy stolen paintings and they started to put out feelers to see if there was anyone looking to sell some particularly hot property. And sure enough, before long, they made contact with the thieves who set up a meeting. They set up a meeting with someone who they thought was a legitimate, well, no, not a legitimate buyer, very much an illegitimate buyer, but you understand, you get my meaning. And so, with the uh, with this uh, meeting arranged, with the uh, with the appointment made, one of the detectives goes along to meet in a location arranged by the thieves. They firstly want to meet in the middle of the night, but the detective, you know, realizing that he is meeting with literal criminals, decides to not do that and meets in broad daylight in a public place. They say, "You've got to come back to our house. We've got it. Uh, got the painting stash there. If you want to come and have a look at it." The detective goes, "All right, okay, I'll come with you." Heads back to this house, goes into the kitchen, and the thieves then pull a rug back to reveal a trapdoor in the kitchen. These blo- these blokes are, I mean, they've got a flair for the dramatic, I'll give them that. So they say, all right, down you pop down the trapdoor, have a look at the painting, it's down there. And this detective, who again is posing as an art buyer, he goes, I don't think so, boys. Again, you two are crooks. I'm not, I'm not going to go down into a dark basement. Uh, I'll be fine up here. You can bring the painting up. So the thieves, they head down to the basement. They bring the painting up. They manage not to fall down the ladder this time. Uh, and sure enough, they unveil the screen, the actual 1893 painting that was done by Edvard Munch and the copper, the detective, he immediately recognises it as authentic. How does he know it's authentic? Well, he had memorised some tiny details about the painting so because he knew that if he was to you know, see it, he would have to be able to tell if it was real or not, it was just a, you know, a print that they'd, bought, that they'd bought in the museum gift shop. So he'd memorised all these different details about the painting including the fact that the screaming figure, it it has some minuscule drops of wax near its shoulder. This is not actually part of the painting that Munk did. Munk blew out a candle too close to the painting at one point and it splashed some tiny drops of wax on it. And that was one of the things that this detective used to make sure and and realise that the painting was indeed genuine. And so, having determined it's a real thing, he obviously realises he needs to get out of there and, and go back and tell everyone else what he's found. And so, he makes an excuse rather like probably you might do if you're in a shop with a very pushy salesperson and you're wanting to get out of there. Uh, he says to them, okay, all right, no, no worries, you blokes, that's fine. Let me have a think about it. I'll come back. I'll let you know. Except he didn't come back. He went and dobbed in the thieves and their location to the Norwegian coppers who headed down, they headed over to this house post-haste, arrested the thieves down in the basement. There they find the, the scream, of course, the painting, safe and sound, and they send it back to the National Gallery, no worse for wear. These thieves, after their arrest, they were put on trial and they were found guilty. Uh, one of them even had priors. He had stolen a different Munch painting back in the 80s. Obviously, he had a bit of a taste for it. However... These two blokes didn't stay in prison for very long at all. Their convictions were overturned when it emerged, if you'll believe it, it emerged that the British detectives who had organised the sting operation entered Norway using false identities. And apparently this was enough to get these two crooks off the hook for the crime that they'd committed. No idea what's going on there, but they walked free because these detectives entered the country under false identity. So I don't know what the I don't know what the story is there. I don't know if uh, this bloke finally, you know, stolen this is now his second monk painting. I don't know if he realized, well, okay, that's probably enough of that. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk on the straight and narrow now. Or maybe he went off and started stealing other paintings. I don't know. But 
when it comes to stolen Munch paintings, we're just getting started. Because, of course, the second copy of the painted version was stolen from the same museum in 2004. This was the, the version of the paint that was, uh, that painted, it was painted in 1910. And uh, this heist was a little more exciting than the first in terms of the actual theft itself. Let me tell you this. On the 22nd of August in 2004, two men wearing balaclavas and wielding pistols stormed into the National Gallery at about 11 o'clock in the morning. They went to where the 1910 version of the screen was on display and they began to threaten the guards and the public there. They're waving their pistols about, pointing, pointing the pistols at the guards, telling everyone to get down on the floor. One of the robbers was on crowd control. He was uh, he was holding everyone at gunpoint, making sure they're all down on the floor. The other one used some wire cutters to snip the wires that held the screen and it's framed the wall. And then, for good measure, he also did the same with another Munch painting called Madonna. Uh, this painting wasn't actually of Madonna, at least, at least I don't think it was, because Munch painted it in the 1890s and Madonna wasn't born until... I mean, oh, geez, at least, at least 10 years later. Might have been longer. I don't know. Anyway, um, the two thieves, they grabbed these paintings and they then made themselves scared. Well, they tried to at least make themselves scarce. They rushed out of the museum with, these, uh, with the paintings in tow and they were in such a hurry that on the way out of the museum, one of them dropped one of the paintings on the way and had to stop and pick it up again. What is going on with art thieves in Norway? Why are they so clumsy? Falling off ladders, dropping these paintings? I don't know what's going on. Anyway. They get out to their car. Before they make it to the car, however, there was actually a passerby. There was a there was a uh, someone who was just standing around by the outside the museum who had the presence of mind to to take a picture of the two blokes outside the museum as they raced over to this getaway vehicle. But they got inside and they zoomed off, and that was that. And you can <laughs> you can just imagine the call that went through to the Oslo cops. Oh yeah, hey officer, sorry mate. Um, just letting you know. Um. The scream's been stolen again. Oh, not not again. What are you blokes doing? Are you sticky taping to the wall? What's going on, mate? What's good? How's you st- stolen again? Should we should we call the British? They're asking. No, no, mate. Not after last time. We'll leave them. No, it's fine. We'll do it ourselves. Anyway, the cops begin to investigate, and while they try to track down the thieves, all they found at the end of their investigation uh, were the busted up frames and some broken glass, as well as the getaway car, which had been abandoned by the uh, by the crooks. But that was that. The paintings were lost. And even if they were recovered, people were very worried about their condition. They were certain that they were going to be very badly damaged between, you know, being dropped and the frames and the glass being all broken, whatever else. Now, we come to a part of the story that is actually a, a bit of a letdown. The The ending of this story is a real anticlimax, and I'm sorry to be so disappointing. I don't want to big up the, the ending of this story and make you feel like there's going to be some great big... You know, a, a very satisfying ending with a, a huge amount of poetic justice being dispensed. No, the ending is, is it really goes out with a fizzle rather than a bang. I couldn't find out many details about how the story ended. Uh, the Norwegian police seem to have played a very close hand with the investigation they undertook. But here's what I can tell you. The next year after the theft, six different blokes were arrested and they were put on trial in connection with the theft. And each of them was sentenced to between four and eight years in prison. Two of them were fined. Two of them were fined 750 million Norwegian krona, which is about 117 million US dollars. An absolutely colossal fine, like laughably huge. No one was going to, I mean, they're not going to be able to pay. These blokes were, they're crooks. They're not multi-millionaires, although, then again, what's the difference? Am I right? Um, it was a, it was a symbolic, it was a symbolic fine. Like, obviously, it was just to make them see that, you know, the, 
I, I don't know. I, I would say that make them say they weren't mucking around. In that case, I don't know. Lock them up for longer. I don't know what the situation is there. But of course, these blokes weren't actually expected to pay back 117 million dollars in fines. But uh, look, I'm really sorry about. The, apart from that, the otherwise near total lack of detail. Uh, in 2006, it was announced that the paintings had been found safe and well. Not safe and sound, uh, safe and a little damaged, uh, as people had feared. Uh, but the gallery, gallery curators said that the damage wasn't as bad as they had expected it to be. Most of it could be repaired. The scream had suffered water damage, some of it irreparable, unfortunately. Uh, but the, the the Madonna was in slightly better shape. It was, it was a bit torn, but it was okay. And here's what I think is really cool about this, though. Before the artworks underwent the restoration process within the museum, they were put on display. For five days, as is, they were actually shown to the public in their damaged states, which I think is terrific. Thousands of people visited the gallery to see them all busted up. I would have, I would have gone as well. Um, but before long, paintings were taken off behind closed doors, fixed up, and then put it back, put back on display. And that is more or less the end of the story. I'm sorry to say, the cops never actually gave any details as to how the paintings were recovered. Uh, as to what their investigation uncovered, as to anything, really. To this day, it is a mystery as to what happened to recover these paintings. There are all sorts of wild theories about it, the idea that these criminals did successfully ransom them and extort the Norwegian government, who then couldn't admit that publicly and so paid the money under the table and then went, oh, we just happened to find them and we're not telling you how. All sorts of theories. I don't know how many of them are true, if any. The fact of the matter is, we don't know. We might find out eventually. There is probably a point at which some of this paperwork will become public in some in, in some fashion. But until then, that's all we've got. They got them back somehow. They've always remained very tight-lipped as to how. So for now, we just don't know. I wish I could tell you. I really do. But at this stage, it's just not public information. Anyway, nevertheless, the paintings are back on display, as I say, and they're still there today in Oslo. You can go and see them for yourself if you go to the National Gallery. Although, presumably, they have a little more security than they used to have. You might need more than a ladder or some wire cutters to nick them this time around. And if you do manage to steal them from the museum, I will remind you that you will have to deal with a police force that by now has quite a bit of experience with the uh, with the screen being stolen from the National Gallery. I imagine it's probably part of the mandatory training that all new Oslo cops go through. They have their the, the training module on what to do when the screen is stolen, not if in this case. And, you know, they, they, they've probably got a direct line that goes straight to the museum, the red telephone. It rings and... Yes, it's the curator, the museum director on the other side of the line. Oh, the scream's been stolen. You know, okay, all right, everyone, you know how it goes. Let's get to it then. The final art heist we're going to get across today isn't actually one single heist. Uh, instead, we're going to talk about the most stolen piece of artwork in history. Many art historians consider this to be a piece called the Ghent Altarpiece, uh, or, or alternatively, the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. And it's a weird one. It's a polyptych, uh, which is basically a bunch of paintings all together um, that are considered one single piece of art. You might have heard of a triptych, uh, which is three paintings that are all one piece of art. Hieronymus Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights is a very famous example of that. And you can have a diptych and a quad I should have looked that up. A quad I don't know, a quadratic? No idea what it's called, but a, a, essentially a polyptych is just many, poly, many, 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 many paintings all put together, in this case about 20. Um, the Ghent altarpiece 
is just that. It is an, it's an altarpiece uh, with, with a lot of paintings all mounted together on panels. Uh, some of the some of the panels move. They're like doors, essentially. Uh, it's designed for display in a Christian church behind the altar, hence altarpiece. Very, very, it's a very famous work um, done by brothers Hubert and Jan van Eyck. Um, it's the first major oil painting. It's generally considered to mark the change from medieval to Renaissance art. Very big deal in the art world. And uh, since 1432, when it was completed, it has been stolen so many times. Uh, or I guess I should actually be more specific and say bits of it have been stolen so many times. Uh, there have been seven different attempts at stealing either the Ghent altarpiece itself or parts of it, you know, a, a, a painting here, a panel there, whatever else. And it's not just theft that it's had to deal with throughout its lifetime as well. Um, it has also been on the verge of total destruction more than a couple of times. In 1566, for instance, during a period known as the Elden Storm, the iconoclastic fury, um, the Ghent altarpiece is a Catholic artwork and the Protestants, when they were up and about going around during this period known as the, as I say, the iconoclastic fury, they're busting up and destroying Catholic churches and their lavish decorations and artifacts and artworks like this one that were seen as idolatrous. And uh, Protestants in Ghent, they're getting amongst it, smashing stuff to bits. And so the Catholics in St. Bavo's Cathedral in Ghent, which, uh, which housed the Ghent altarpiece, still does today, uh, they took the altarpiece and they hid it in the attic. But even even then, being hidden away in the... I mean, they'd never think to look there. Uh, even after having hidden it in the attic, they decided, no, that wasn't enough. So they moved it. They moved it to the Ghent Town Hall, where it was kept... Uh, it was held under guard to uh, protect it from the rampaging uh, rampaging Protestants, which which ultimately... they It did. It was protected. It survived. But while it survived the iconoclastic fury, it, like so much else in Europe, did not survive Napoleon. Napoleon's troops nicked four panels from the Ghent altarpiece in 1794, and they took them back to the Louvre with all the other artwork that Napoleon had stolen. Um, although these panels didn't stay in France for very long, after Louis XVIII was restored to the French throne in 1815, he gave them back to the city of Ghent as a thank you. Ghent had given him refuge in the past, so this was his way of, of repaying their kindness. But then the same year in 1815, the church just pawned some of the panels. I don't know how short of money that they must have been to get rid of this incredible parts of this incredible artwork. Um, but what's worse, they failed to pay back the pawnbroker who then sold these panels on, and they ended up in the possession of the King of Prussia in a museum in Berlin. Also, I should mention, this story is disputed. Not everyone agrees on the pawning a bunch of panels and them ending up in Berlin that way. Um, there are some art historians who believe that a priest from St. Bavo's Cathedral actually stole the panels himself and sold them on illegally, fenced them, and then somehow, some way, they ended up in the possession of the King of Prussia in Berlin. I don't know what actually happened. I don't know which one of these stories is true. If, if, if one of them is true, in fact, maybe neither of them are. I'm certainly not inserting myself in this argument. I'm not getting caught in the crossfire of art nerds in their argument over this sort of thing. Suffice to say... The, the panels ended up in the possession of the King of Prussia somehow. For those that didn't, however, for the rest of the Ghent altarpiece, it didn't have a very easy time of it at all. It had to deal with all sorts of things. It had to get through, get through so much. Uh, it was damaged by fire. It was also damaged by terrible restoration jobs. Go online. I, I, I'm telling you, go online, look up the Ghent altarpiece and look at what happened to one of the sheep when it was restored quote unquote it's like i don't know if you remember that that um that picture of jesus 
from a few years ago that was restored in Spain. It's it's cut from the same cloth. You should go and have a look at this poor old sheep. Um, but look, quite aside from the damage and and whatever else, it is it is theft that has defined the history of the Ghent altarpiece. And wouldn't you know it? More panels were stolen during the First World War when Ghent fell into the hands of the Germans. Uh, they got some good old-fashioned looting done. They nicked a couple more paintings from the altarpiece and took them back to Berlin. But then, of course, the Germans lost the First World War. And one of the conditions of the Treaty of Versailles was the return of the panels that had been stolen during the war and also the ones that had been pawned over a century beforehand as well. So the Ghent altarpiece was made whole once more when the Germans finally handed it over, acquiescing to the Treaty of Versailles in 1932. And the altarpiece remained safe and whole for about two years, as in 1934, some more paintings were stolen and one of them has never been returned. The case is still open, but we'll come back to that in a second. Hang on. Because I want to cover off the Second World War, uh, because Hitler had a very unusual fixation on the Ghent altarpiece. He wanted it in Nazi hands. There is a theory that says that as it was one of the conditions of the Treaty of Versailles, the, the, the hated Treaty of Versailles, as far as Hitler was concerned, he wanted to, to prove just how far he was willing to go to contravene the conditions of this treaty by returning the Ghent altarpiece into the hands of Germany. And uh, look, he he put a lot of effort into seizing this artwork. When the Nazis invaded Belgium and captured Ghent, they seized the altarpiece. They eventually moved it to Neuschwanstein Castle in southern Bavaria, but then it was moved to a salt mine uh, for protection as Allied bombing raids threatened the castle and the art held within it. And then ultimately, uh, this, uh, this, the, the altarpiece, this artwork, was recovered by the Allies from the salt mine once the war ended. Now, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, well, hang on, this sounds familiar. What's Riley doing? What's he doing? He's, I mean, I'm sure I saw this in a film. He's just copying the plot of a famous film. And yes, I am indeed. If it sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you've watched the film The Monuments Men. And the Ghent altarpiece plays a very important role in that film. That is, broadly speaking, what happens uh, in that in that film. It's got George Clooney and it's got Matt Damon. Uh, anyway, uh, the Ghent altarpiece returned to Belgium. Today, you can find it in St. Bavos Cathedral in Ghent on display for the public, although these days it is in a bulletproof glass case. They are not wanting to tempt fate there. However, if you go to Ghent and if you view this masterpiece, you'll notice that nothing's missing. All of the paintings seem to be there. And I told you before that from this 1934 heist, one painting was never recovered. So what happened there? Well, in 1934, one of the panels was stolen. This panel had two paintings on it. um, And unfortunately, how the panel was stolen, uh, the details about that are actually very scarce. So I can't really talk about how it was stolen because we still don't know. But we do know, of course, that the thieves left a note. That is what you do when you steal art. You leave a note. Um, and this note said, taken from Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. So this painting may, the paintings may have been nicked by some Germans. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe this was a, a red herring. But I do know that the Ghent police commissioner himself, Antoine Lusterbox, he investigated the church personally on the morning after the theft. But only because it was on the way to a cheese shop that had been broken into that same night, and that seemed to be a more pressing 
concern for the commissioner because before long, after looking around the church, he went, okay, yes, and went across the road to the cheese shop to see what had been going on there. So the theft of some very, I mean, some extremely famous pieces of art here, centuries old, priceless works of art, the theft of them from a centuries old cathedral was not as much of a priority to a cheese shop what got broken in for the Ghent police commissioner that morning. Anyway, the thieves got in touch, uh, they got in touch with the bishop of the church and they demanded a ransom of one million Belgian francs uh, for the stolen paintings. They actually, uh, well, to sweeten the deal, and I guess maybe as a show of good faith, they they sent one of the paintings from the panel back. Um, I guess they also did this to, you know, prove they had them. They weren't bluffing. They weren't betting on an empty hand. They did have the paintings. One of the paintings was returned. The other one wasn't. Uh, As negotiations opened up between the Belgian authorities and these thieves, they demanded this ransom. The Belgian government wasn't going to pay. There was a series of of letters and and ransom notes and demands sent back and forth, I think 10 or 11 uh, letters in all, between the thieves and the Belgian government. But the government refused to pay. The ransom was never paid. And as a result, the painting was never returned. And to this day, it has never been recovered. But the story doesn't end there. Later that year, 1934, there was a money changer named Arsene Godertier who was on his deathbed. And as he was dying, he summoned his lawyer to him uh, to put his affairs in order. And he confessed to his lawyer that he was the one who had stolen the panel, stolen these paintings from the Ghent altarpiece. And he said that he was the only one who knew where this remaining painting was. However, He did not tell his lawyer where. He took the secret to his grave. Uh, Amongst his papers, seemingly confirming his story as being the thief, uh, they found carbon copies of the ransom notes, including, and there was also one that hadn't been sent to the Belgian authorities. Um, And there was a final little clue about where the painting is. It rests in a place where neither I nor anybody else can take it away without arousing the attention of the public. So what's that supposed to mean, mate? I mean, first of all, the clue doesn't even rhyme. So what kind of what kind of treasure hunt are you sending us on? But second of all, where is it? What, do you hide it in a, in a Belgian tourist attraction somewhere so someone's going to see it if you're trying to mess with it? What, is it hidden behind the mannequin piss? Where is it, at the top of the top of the Atomium? Is it at the, is it in the, is it, is it in the, is, is it at one of Belgium's many other very famous tourist attractions? Look, the fact is, we don't know. It's never been found. Almost 90 years later, it has never been found. And the case, I will tell you, the, the criminal case is still open. The Belgian police are still investigating. There is a suspicion that the painting actually may never have been removed from the church itself. And at one point... To test this theory, the entire cathedral was x-rayed to a depth of 10 metres to see if that turned anything up. But the story gets even better. It is not just the cops that are investigating the loss of this painting, hoping to return the Ghent altarpiece to its former state of completion with all the Van Eyck paintings in their rightful place. In 1995, while investigating the missing painting unofficially, and you'll realise in what manner this investigation was unofficial by the end of the very next sentence, someone went ahead and illegally, you, you, are, you are never going to, you, you are not ready for the second half of the sentence. You are never going to guess what's coming next. Never in a million years. Someone went ahead and illegally 
dug up Godertier's body and stole his skull. Why on earth might they do that, you wonder? Well, of course, to conduct a seance with it and ask Godertier's ghost or whatever where he'd hidden the painting. This is true. It is not a joke. This actually happened. Unfortunately, this particular avenue investigation does not seem to have yielded results. And to this day, the stolen painting is still missing. However, as I said, if you visit St. Bavos, you will find the Ghent altarpiece seemingly complete in its bulletproof case. So what's going on there? None of the paintings seem to be missing at all. Very strange. I've just told you that one of them's never been returned. What do they do? Well, when it became clear that the missing painting wouldn't be returned, the Belgian authorities... I mean, you... This story still hasn't finished getting better here. This story still isn't over. The Belgian authorities commissioned a famous art restorer, Jeff van der Weyken, right, to paint a copy of it. And that copy is on display today in Ghent. You might be thinking, well, hang on one second. What are they doing? Just getting some Johnny come, or not some, some Jeff come lately off the street to, to, you know, attempt to emulate the the work of these great old masters, some 20th century hack art restorer to try to to try to emulate this masterpiece from centuries gone by. Well, let me tell you something about Jeff von der Weyken. Later in his career, years after painting this copy, again, just in case you already didn't do a good enough job, it emerged that von der Weyken was an extremely accomplished art forger who had avoided detection for most of his life and very probably painted a great number of paintings that he then passed off as originals. So don't you worry, this bloke had the chops. It is hilarious to me that one of the panels of one of the most famous paintings in the art world is painted by a forger. It is, I mean, it is a forgery. It is a forgery, there's no doubt about it. It is just a forgery that we all decided we're okay with. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Those are some of the funniest art heists in history. But let me tell you this. They're not the only ones. There are some that ended up on the cutting room floor and it it really makes me think we need to come back to this and explore some of the other ridiculous stories that I came across because there are some blinders that uh, didn't quite make the cut this time. So maybe in a couple of weeks we'll come back and explore some more uh, ridiculous stories from the uh, from the world of, of, of art history and the intersection thereof with uh, the criminal underworld. Uh, but until then, of course, we're going to close out the show with all the boring housekeeping stuff that uh, you've come to expect. Halfhousehistory.net, the website. Go there, find old episodes, uh, find links to the different places that you can subscribe to the show, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, now working. It seems to be uh, up and about. Doesn't seem to be any residual issues hanging on, so I'm very, very pleased about that. Um, And, uh, of course, if you want to get in touch, as so many listeners do every week, thank you so much to all the listeners who are writing in. If if you want to join their exalted ranks, halfhousehistory.net, there's a contact form there. Send in your thoughts, your feedback, your ideas, your topic suggestions, merch pictures as well. If you've got an idea for uh, for something you'd like to see on a T-shirt, let me know. Um, and a special thank you, of course, this week and every week to the Patreon supporters, people supporting me on patreon.com slash half history. You can go over there, grab yourself a range of benefits, uh, including uncut episodes, show notes, all sorts of stuff over there, exclusive Patreon only merch. 
But the biggest thank you, of course, goes to the people who are out there spreading the good word of Half-Assed History. It has been terrific to have so many new listeners join us. Uh, welcome. By all means, welcome. It's so good to have people coming along and, uh, and and listening to this dumb podcast week in and week out and telling their friends, their enemies, and people in their lives about whom they feel largely ambivalent. So thank you so much to people who are contributing to the success of the show. Watching those numbers go up has been terrific. And uh, I'm so glad that we've brought in new listeners each week that uh, hopefully are going to stick around. And if there's someone in your life who you think might have a giggle at some of these silly art stories, well, be sure to let them know as well. And look, even if you don't, just go onto their device, go onto their Spotify or whatever, and just play the episode anyway, because it still counts. It doesn't matter if some, it doesn't matter if they're listening or not. Those numbers show up. Those numbers show up on the back end all the same. So <laughs> a great way to support the show. Anyway, going to close out the, uh, the the episode this week, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. Thanks for listening. See you back here for more nonsense uh, next week on Half House History. Until then, leave you the question posed by Redditor Skekekt, who asks, before photography was invented, was hiring an art thief the only way to have your picture taken? <laughs> <laughs>